and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Neil Phillips. And me, Victoria Hillman. And me, Hilary Jeffkins. So, Hilary, can you very quickly introduce who you are? I'm Hilary Jeffkins and I am a series producer and producer on an up-and-coming series called Wild Isles. So we'll go back to that in a second, but... As always, we've got to start with our latest wildlife sightings. And as the guest, you get to go first, Hilary. So do you have any interest in latest sightings? I've seen a few lovely buzzards sitting around, uh, uh, ready to hunt. Um, I guess not a direct sighting, but some of my colleagues have been collecting up toads that have been crossing roads because they're active at the moment. So lots of uh, lovely images of toads, but I'd like to get my hands on one myself. Oh yeah, we do love a toad on this podcast. Always look grumpy, but always cool. So Vic, what's your latest sightings? This is going to shock everybody on the podcast, but you're never going to guess what I saw today. It was a red kite. But (laughs) (laughs) this one, it was a little bit different. It was actually on a slightly different road and it was actually flying down the middle of the road directly at my car. And I was just like, pull up, pull up, pull up. And it did last minute. And I got a beautiful sighting of it. More excitingly though, is that the frogs have returned to the pond finally they are a couple of weeks later this year compared to previous years and i came back from swimming on sunday night thought i'll go and check the pond and the moment i opened the door i just heard that most amazing sound you could possibly want to hear a male frog calling in the pond and i thought you know it's just music to my ears and when i came down this morning lo and behold there was a nice little clump of frog spawn in there so they are back and they are breeding and he's sitting out there calling tonight as well and a couple of blue tits sitting on the the curly willow outside the house and quite a few spiders actually uh, wolf spiders and nursery web spiders in the garden over like on the sunnier days over the last week or so so how about you Neil? I have had a few signs of spring myself I've had a ladybird in the kitchen which my son found so well done to him and loads of wolf spiders in my garden as well but I've also had my frogs back, at least four adults in there, four clumps of spawn. The wife gave me a message on WhatsApp, oh, I've just seen frogs in the pond. And when I came back and shone a torch in the pond with me little ones, then uh, they got to see some frogs swimming around. And uh, yesterday in the garden with my son, we just sat there watching the frogs sort of swimming around. They, They were hiding most of the time, but a male came up and started calling. So my son has heard a common frog calling at age four. I think it took me to like my 20s to hear one calling properly so that was a uh, pretty cool yeah because they don't go rivet do they Vic? they go sort of that weird what someone described it as a motorbike in the distance yeah it, it's 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 a surprisingly quiet call but then i was lying in bed on sunday night with the window slightly open and i was surprised that i could actually because the pond is a little bit further up the garden i was surprised i could actually hear it quite clearly clearly lying in bed i didn't realize just how you know far away you can hear it from but i have also spotted a fox I live in a terraced house. It's not got a very big garden, but this fox comes in. What it does, interestingly, is it buries eggs (laughs) in my my garden. So I've been sort of sorting out raised Mm. beds and just chucking out all the soil. And I keep finding buried eggs, which (laughs) I think can only be a fox. And it's also been up on the window box, how it managed that and and put them in there. (laughs) And there was actually, interestingly, some neighbours were complaining about eggs disappearing from their doorstep. So I think it, it it could be that fox that's taking it, it, them. It certainly all um, adds up, doesn't it? Oh. Seems to, yeah. But it's, yeah, I think it's a pancake night, so could be quite yeah. handy. <laughs> Free eggs. Trying to pl- it's trying to grow an egg tree. <laughs> so it works, isn't it? I'm probably oh, don't get into egg jokes. I probably completely oh, forget about where he's put them as well. I believe they're called egg yolks. 
Sorry, that was excruciatingly oh. bad. Oh, anyway. I'll stop, there. I'll stop before I get going. Move, Moving swiftly on, let's get on to uh, what we want to get. <laughs> yeah, so let's move on to the main subject and away from Neil's bad jokes, because let's face it, nobody needs to hear his dad jokes. So, Hilary, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Do you want to kind of kick us off and tell us a little bit about kind of you, how you got into the job that you're doing, and then we can kind of lead it on into the, the series? Well, I'm quite lucky to be doing a job that I love. And I suppose it, it, it all stemmed from when I was a child, really loving looking at things in the garden, bugs and plants, and just being really fascinated by their behaviour, just wondering what an egg, a butterfly egg, what, what that belonged to. And in the good old days, you had things like stag beetles in the garden. So that interest continued and I studied biology. And then at the end of that, I wondered what to do. And I was lucky enough to get a job at the BBC Natural History Unit. I started off in the cutting rooms, chopping up bits of negative in the old days when they used to use film. And they needed someone who knew a little bit about wildlife to pick out the bits, pick out the animals that were worth saving for the library. So I spent a little bit of time in there, sort of with my white gloves on, chopping up bits of film and transferring them onto what was in the old days VHS tapes. Uh, they were looking for ideas for programmes. So from that, uh, several of us pitched an idea called The Really Wild Show, a children's programme. So I, I managed to escape from the cutting rooms into sort of programme making. And that was a fantastic programme to, to start on because you, you made little films about mostly British wildlife and you had to explain lots of behaviours and, and uh, sort of concepts in interesting ways. So I, I worked there for 27 years and then became freelance. And now I'm at Silverback Films doing the Wild Isles project. So you helped, you helped start up the Really Wild show? I did. I worked on the first five series with uh, Alistair Fothergill, who's also on Wild Isles, bizarrely. And it, we just thought of a programme based around kids' questions. Kids have such fantastic questions. You know, how does this work? How do chameleons' tongues work? How big is a... How long is a snake? So all these things were fantastic ways of unpackaging brilliant information. So it started off in a studio. I'm sure we wouldn't be allowed to do what we did in those days. We'd had lying cubs and all kinds of things in there with a studio audience of kids. And we would just do these wacky little items. So there used to be lots of animals waiting in the wings to come in to do their sequence. Yeah, so that was that was where I started doing, doing kids' programmes. Well, I think probably it's basically what Neil and I grew up on. That's... <laughs> yeah, I was about to say that. That's... Let's see. So is that Terry Nutkins, Chris Packham, would it be Michaela Strachan know, back then? Nick Davis. Nick so that's the very oh, first. Michaela that. came. I might be not quite old enough for oh, that. Oh, that makes me sound ancient. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, that part of the reason this podcast exists is because of you, so there yeah. we go. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Oh, yeah, I remember watching that. One, one of my, probably my favourite show growing up, I think, when I was you know, on CBBS anyway, or CBBC, whatever it was called back then. It was the good old-fashioned days when kids used to send in letters, which was so entertaining because you'd get sackfuls of really interesting questions. You know, things like, do spiders do wee-wees? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant question. Oh, I mean, we just needed to find out. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the series, kind of what it's about, what people can expect? Just kind of in a nutshell, really, and then yeah. we'll go into more depth on the first episode. So Wild Isles is five one-hour programmes about the wildlife of the British Isles. It starts with an opening programme, which looks at how precious the wildlife is and how globally important it is. And then you've got programmes which look at the habitats. So you have one on woodlands, one on freshwater, grassland one and an ocean programme. They're narrated and presented by David Attenborough. 
And I think our aim really is, is to show through our British audience what um, amazing and dramatic wildlife they have in the British Isles, but also that it's fragile. Yeah. So we're going to talk today about the first episode, because this episode, if all goes to plan, is released just after all of you would have watched the first episode on BBC One. What would you say was your favourite thing to film in that episode? That's a tricky one. I do like the weird and the wonderful. So I like the small stories, the invertebrate stories, the surprising ones. One that we filmed, which was also tricky, was pollination of lords and ladies. So when you're walking in a woodland, you might see a very strange looking flower, quite often under at the base of a tree or in a slightly open area. And they've got a bulb at the bottom and they've got a big purple spadix that comes out of them. So it looks like an alien kind of arum type flower. Now they've got a really interesting pollination because they, they take insects, they kidnap them, they take them hostage. What happens is the spadix heats up and produces a foul-smelling smell, which attracts in little midge flies that are looking for rotting matter to lay their eggs in. They come to, into the flower and they slip inside it, and it's a bit like a torture chamber in there. They've got a set of hairs that they slip past and they then can't get out, so they're trapped inside the flower. And they fall to the bottom, uh, and there's the female bits of the flower down there and they get they get a, a, a sweet reward and then they're kept inside and just before they're released the pollen from the male parts falls onto them and covers them and then the hairs that have trapped them wilt away and they're allowed out again which is just a fantastically bizarre behavior and it, I'm always amazed to think that there are things that you walk past that you see every day and and stories like that are, are going on inside them well, but I think yeah, oh, both Neil and I are, are very big fans of the, the the tiny and the weird and wonderful. Those little stories and those little battles and you know interactions that go on, because we don't see them like you said. We we walk past these things and people don't really give them any more thought. But it's yeah, you know, when you actually really get stuck into them, it's like wow, some of these things are absolutely amazing. It's incredible. Yeah, and you can find those lords and ladies. Pretty much in most parks, if it's like a little bit of woodland, they'll quite often pop up in Yeah, those, really, really yeah. common. Interestingly, we would, they're only hot for about two hours, two or three hours in their whole flowering cycle, which and they're only flower for a couple of days. So trying to find <laughs> hot lords and ladies was, was, was quite a feat. And we had thermal cameras which were able to show show how hot they were. They were glowing in the dark. But I guess with the with the way I mean, the last few years that, you know, the seasons have been so weird and the weather's been so strange. Has that, did that affect it when you were trying to film it as well? You know, did you have like a time that you thought, OK, this might be a good time to go, but if the weather wasn't quite right, then it didn't marry up? Yeah, we have had issues with the weather and things have been delayed. So around that, we filmed them at the end of April and we were also trying to film bluebells. So we had a beautiful bluebell forest that we set up cable dolly system so that in theory we'd shoot the camera down and show all the green leaves and we'd come back and we'd do exactly the same move and see all the lovely blue flowers. Mm. Normally, you know, you would see the green flowers and expect the blue flowers to come within a week, but we had a real cold snap and everything kind of stopped and went on hold. So we kept going down and looking at the bluebells they're not coming what's happening looking at the buds but as soon as we got the sunshine you know they, they did come out so you do get especially in spring these cold snaps which will just put everything on hold and certainly with the arum we were looking at those 
it was a very precise timing that was needed. So we had to find a location which was quite close to Bristol where we live and a, a cameraman who was close by that we could just keep visiting, keep checking to see what, what was happening with the weather. So, and sunny spells can, can push everything forward again, get everything going. Mm. But it seemed at times we were waiting for the sun, <laughs> as were the, the plants and the animals. <laughs> We also had, um, we were filming adders for our grassland programme and they were on slightly higher moorland and the crew turned up and it snowed. I mean, they're cold, they're cold blooded. So they were really sort of devastated and thought that nothing would happen. But the sun came out and the snow thawed and we've got shots of adders with the snow thawing and then they just heated up in the sun and got on with their courtship. So what could have been a disaster, the, the cold blooded creatures were really waiting for a bit of thermal heat, you know, a bit of to, to get going. So that was a strange spring again. And it seems that sometimes you'd be filming and you could have almost three seasons in a day. Yep. Yeah, that's British weather. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Especially if you're on the higher, like, like you said, the moorlands or yeah. Mendips or something like that, when you're up there, you can definitely have every season in a day, I think, sometimes. Well, you can just see the pitch, can't you know? Oh, let's do a blue chip series on British wildlife. Oh, wait. <laughs> I think weather. the weather was one of the most difficult things that we had to deal with. If you're filming blue chip abroad, you, you, you fly away somewhere for three weeks uh, and you're probably guaranteed that 80, 90% of the time you'll get sunshine and you film what you can and you come back with it. Whereas here, we had so many opportunities to go back and do things again because we'd turn up and if it was clearly going to rain for a week or, or be cold, there was really no point in staying and it was quite difficult. So we would say, OK, well, let's cut our losses and go. And we went back again. But we were looking for such high quality footage and trying to com have such complete stories that we did keep revisiting and revisiting to, to get those points in the sequences. And I think we did probably somewhere around 260 filming trips, which was a lot. Wow. wow. But I guess that's it, doing it within the UK. It it does make it that little bit easier not going off to some far-flung country it's it's actually just here in the uk you you've got that and if you've got any sites close to where any any of the team live you have that option to visit them maybe a little bit more frequently yeah it gives you the opportunity to monitor things so if you're doing something which is very time specific and you've got if you've got cameramen spread around as well you can give them a a project if they've got something mm. near them a, a nest or you know something that needs a lot of visits and a lot of checking so there is that advantage mm. what was your hardest thing to film oh um sometimes it's very hard to find marine wildlife so in the opening program we have a, a very dramatic sequence at the top of killer whales of orca hunting uh, for seals and we film this on the shetlands but finding a pod of orca in such a, a large area was was really really tricky and actually finding a pod that were in hunting mode as well. So th that was a real challenge. And we filmed that over two seasons. We, we went back and spent a lot of time in the field doing that. What was really helpful was that there's a very good network of orca and whale spotters up in Shetland that have a, a WhatsApp group. So we our team was able to sort of link into that. So there were sort of eyes around on the cliffs above just looking out for orca the difficulty is is they're fast you know they they can travel in the water pretty efficiently and getting the boats to the right place uh, in time to see what they're doing was really quite hard but what really helped on that too was having drones so being able to get a drone up in the air to see where they were and racing to them so in terms of finding a creature that was difficult and the macro sequences are always quite a challenge to sort of 
to get into tiny spaces and to, to get that kind of magnification that you need. And one of the difficult sequences that we filmed for the Grassland programme was large blue butterflies, the whole life cycle of that, which involved filming in, inside the nest as well to see that behaviour. So, yeah, different difficulties uh, in different kinds of sequences. Such a wide variety of species, I suppose, mm. a wide variety of problems yes. as well, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. But we've got... <laughs> Fantastic cameramen that specialise in different areas. Um, so we've got fabulous macro cameramen that thrive on trying to work out how the heck they're going to film inside a, an, a, a plant. You know, how can they get mm. small flies inside a plant? How can they film a, an ant picking up a caterpillar? And then equally, you've got marine experts that uh, know just what to do underwater. Oh, fantastic. I've been hearing whispers about a programme from various wildlife experts and and people, oh, I can't say much, but, um, you know, stuff like this from people. So uh, I've been anticipating something like this coming along. It's great to finally see that it's on its way to our screens very soon. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it's taken a few years to film it, but so it's, it's the first time really that British natural history has been filmed at that quality and level. It's, I think it's quite difficult to get the funding to mm. do something mm. on that scale. And the ambition really was to do something like our planet but for britain so that you'd watch a program and the wildlife you see could be of the quality and the behaviors are dynamic enough to be in in any sort of global wildlife program yeah i mean i think it's great i mean something neil and i've spoken about on the podcast i actually have my own little kind of project a little large project that i'm working on and it is about we have such amazing nature and wildlife in this country but you know and we both i mean that neil and i both we spend most of our time researching, photographing. It's one of the reasons we set up the podcast as well. You know, to really celebrate the wildlife and the variety of wildlife and nature that we have here. It is just absolutely fascinating. It really is. It is, but Britain is in the bottom 10% in terms of how much wildlife it has. Mm. Bottom 10% of countries. So we are in trouble. Uh, and we hope that this programme is going to, to showcase what we've got, get people really excited and really proud but also make them realise how fragile it is. Well, I mean, fingers crossed. I, I think it will, because I think once people see it out there and they see it on TVs, it's it becomes a little bit more real than something that might be, I don't know, like in a park or in a nature reserve or something. Suddenly it's, it's in their home, you know, on their TV. Exactly. Yeah. It's, on, it's on your doorstep. It is home. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's that emotional connection and it, it's ours, you know, and we have to mm. protect it. You look what happened with Planet Earth 2. Suddenly plastic pollution was priority number one almost, wasn't it, after maybe, I don't know, global warming or something. Let's hope it has a similar impact. You know, people actually pay attention to things that are affecting our wildlife right now rather than just, oh, I don't want these houses built here. It's kind of, oh, we need to protect this wildlife. We need to take the measures maybe i should be supporting the people a bit more that are trying to help it and fingers crossed it'll have a what they call it, the blue planet 2 effect didn't they we'll have a wild owls effect and british wildlife will benefit from yeah, it. yeah i hope so and it's a combination of, of behavior stories but we are weaving in a conservation thread so at the end of a sequence or within a sequence we will give a fact or a figure which will make people think so in in the fresh water program we, we tell people that actually statistically none of the british rivers in england are free of pollution which is quite shocking and we've lost over 90 percent of our wild flower meadows so although you see these beautiful meadows there aren't many of them left 
when we've been working with RSPB and WWF and they're sort of launching a big campaign to save our wild isles. So there'll be things that people can do. David Attenborough makes an appeal at the end of the programme to go to the website and find out what you can do. So there is follow-up action that people can make a difference to just try and improve things. Oh, that's really great as well, because that's something that, like, you know, we can, with the podcast and through our own channels as well, we can help share that message around. Because it's something that we're both hugely passionate about. Like I said, we we started the UK Wildlife Podcast to, to cover some of the, you know, some of the stories, but to celebrate the wildlife and the nature that we have here. So, you know, it's great to actually finally have this Wild Isles series and to actually have you on to talk about it. And Yeah, I think we see it. We see it as a launching pad, really, to get people talking and to get people wanting to conserve what they've got. Mm. So it's kind of almost a satellite programme where you can see these amazing things, but know that they're fragile and work to try and do something to improve the situation. The great thing about, well, since Planet Earth 2, isn't it, the the ratings for 30 years old and below have been really high. For nature programmes, it used to be that category used to have hardly anyone in, apart from shows like The Really Wild Show, I suppose. <laughs> uh, now, you know, the teenagers and up to 30 are, are watching these shows. They, they know who David Attenborough is. When I used to do environmental education, oh, sorry, let's try again. I do environmental education. Yeah, try, I can't say environmental education, it's my job. But doing, envi- doing environmental education, I'm going to have to leave that in now, aren't I? What, 10, when did I start? Oh, God, I dread to think. It'd been like 2007. If I said David Attenborough to a bunch of primary school kids, they'd have gone, who? They all know who he is now. He's, I think he's really popular. He's quite a cult figure, isn't he, now with young people? And it's good to have someone that they respect telling the stories because if David Attenborough says it, it it must be true and he's such a great storyteller he sh- he shares amazing stories that just he, he brings them to life mm. for young people mm. absolutely brilliant well we, we grew up on that as well yeah. so, <laughs> we were ahead of the curve we were cool before yeah. we knew David Attenborough before it was cool <laughs> oh so people have just watched the first episode we've talked about your favorite thing to film well, what other sequences in there can you, can you tell us any stories behind any of the other sequences in that episode We've got a really nice sequence of puffins, everybody's favourite. It's interesting, when we were creating the series, we were all fighting about what sequences should be in there. We're all a bit nerdy and wildlifey, and it was like trying to choose your favourite child. We all just wanted <laughs> wanted things in there, but we all agreed that puffins would be a great one to film. So we've there's two, two puffiny bits in the first programme, and at the end, there's a really brilliant sequence of kleptoparasitism. So basically... An animal, which is a black-headed gull, stealing the food of another. So we've got mean black-headed gulls that wait for puffins to come in, flying in from sea with their catch, and they steal their food. Now the puffins, they haven't got a crop, so they can't carry their food hidden away. They have it all on display, hanging out of their beaks. And you've probably seen those classic pictures where you see beautiful puffins with lots of sand eels hanging out. So as they come in from sea, they land, and the gulls chase them and they just try to steal all their sand eels it was quite fun to film because the puffins were holding onto them they didn't want to let them go and the black-headed gulls were ended up snipping them off so the puffin, the, <laughs> they were snipping off all the ends so the puffins were having these short little sand eels left and what they were doing they were coming in and what they needed to do was get down their burrows as quickly as possible because they had a puffling a puffling chick down there that they needed to feed but there were so many gulls chasing them that sometimes they would just do a handbrake turn and they'd skid down a burrow. But it wasn't their own burrow. So they were in trouble. So they 
the, the other puffins were not pleased to have them down there. And the gulls kind of knew that they were in the wrong burrow and that they would have to come up again. So they'd sort of all be loitering, waiting for them to come up. And the puffin was poking its little head up and then it would just think, heck, I've got to go for it. So it would just come out and make another run. And we've got a, a really dramatic sequence of this poor puffin that comes out who just does an epic run and he's being chased and he keeps his sand eels and he does manage to do another skid and he is in his own burrow so that was a, a fun one to film and it's got great music you're all rooting for the puffing thing come on come on get down your burrow so it does make it and we also filmed our last piece to camera with David Attenborough the final bit on Scoma with the puffins and he does a quite moving piece talking about the state of British natural history really and how diminished it is and how we've all got to protect it but it's a beautiful piece. Scoma has got puffing colonies that there are places where the path crosses the colony. So it's possible to sit or walk past the puffins without disturbing them because they're, they're very used to people. So we filmed a lovely piece with, with Sir David Attenborough sitting just at the edge of the puffing colony. And they were flying in in the evening, sort of ready to go down into their burrows. Uh, and they were passing him. So that was that was a really lovely thing to film. I think the one thing I'm looking forward to with this series is doing the I've been there, I've been there, and wind up my wife when I watch it because we've, we've both been there. <laughs> yes, we've been, so yeah, yeah. Sat at the wick. Is it the wick? Yeah, the wick. I think that's what you talk about, isn't it, Hillary? Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the little yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Spent, spent many I mean, hours, many hours, hours uh, on Scoma. <laughs> and I think we tried to get lots of lovely aerials uh, across the country within the programmes, and there will be times when people will recognise places that they're that is home you know they will recognize habitats at the beginning of the opening program we have a lovely journey that looks at the diverse geology of britain which is the most diverse geology possibly on the planet which gives us all the different habitats and we were in yorkshire going over limestone pavements we were in thumbling going over a waterfall giants causeway so all kinds of places that people will have been to and will know which will draw them in to their own home wildlife I, th I think you're right because as well they see something they go oh i know that that's where i live you know or that that's my home that's my area you know and i know i i feel any time i see anything from like somerset on there i'm like that's my home that's where i live yeah. and i get really excited about it and it, it's that instant connection because it is where you live you know it, it yeah. yeah it's home and it, on a smaller level you could say oh, i've seen one of those i've seen one of those in the woods mm. We filmed the courtship of hares, which we all see, but sometimes you don't really know what's going on. You're seeing lots of hares jumping up and boxing. So, but who's doing what? You know, is it females boxing? Is it males? So, to to have that deconstructed and to see that in high speed and to have every step of the way, I think it's fun because people will go back out looking at wildlife and they'll be able to say, "Yeah, I, I know what that's." doing that male is mm. uh, is testing he's following the female and he's, he's testing her scent you know so you can i think people have new pub facts and new information which will make them appreciate even more what they're seeing and i think look at it like you said with fresh eyes you know they've seen maybe seen something like the hairs boxing or whatever and then they watch the program they go out and like okay now i understand what's going on and they see it in a different light and it becomes that much more interesting to them yeah, and we've got some sequences which we filmed at night. So what happens in a starling's roost at night? This is in our woodland programme. Lots of us have seen the fantastic murmurations of starlings when they're in the autumn, creating their great big flocks before they, they go down into areas of woodland, perhaps, to roost for the night. 
but stuff happens in these roosts. It's not always safe. And we've had thermal cameras which have shown hundreds of birds jostling for position. You know, it's there's a bit of a hierarchy as to what position you get within the roost. And then there are predators that come in at night. So we filmed a barn owl that came in and plucked out a starling, took it away and had it for supper. So it may seem like a, they're settling down for a safe night's sleep, but beyond the darkness, stuff is happening. So it's really nice to be able to sort of go that extra step. And equally, we filmed for the grassland programme what goes on in fields of rabbits at night, what the foxes are up to. So there yeah, be some interesting things to see. It's really so I, for one, can't wait for it to... No, yeah, it's going to... That's my that's Sunday brilliant. night viewing, sort of. <laughs> yeah. And occasionally you come across things that you just don't expect. The marine team, they've got a shopping list of what they need to find when they're diving, but occasionally something just weird will happen. One of the teams was filming and they came across an area of mud which just looked pretty lifeless and they didn't expect to see anything, but it, it was moving. So they looked down and there were hundreds, thousands of sea slugs just all munching away at the mud. And then suddenly they just all took off out of the mud they they're called royal flush sea slugs and they just all started floating in the water they were just all decided to move off en masse to find somewhere else to feed and they were amazing they looked like fairies floating fairies and they were sort of pulsing with their mantles and just floating up and it was quite a sort of spectacle that i don't think anyone has ever filmed before but just by chance they came across it and i think there's especially under the sea there's there's a lot that we don't know about yeah so the amount of stuff that you know we're arguably the most studied island or set of islands aren't we in natural history and yet there's still so much stuff we just don't know or don't even know is there in many cases it's it's amazing stuff yeah i agree and we've been studying it since naturalists old-fashioned naturalists and i think vicars old vicar vicars used to sort of spend their time studying yes there's an awful lot that if you look at it in detail, there's, there's more stories to be told. I was going to ask, what can we look forward to in the upcoming episodes? But I think we've, we've touched on a few more <laughs> yeah. things. Have you, got, have you got any other exclusive spoilers for the show? Spoilers. <laughs> um, Teasers, I suppose, is a bit word rather than spoiler. Teasers. So we were talking about mm. toads before. We do have a toad story. Yeah. So there's something awful that's going to happen to some toadlets that are coming out of a pond. Hi everyone, just interrupting quickly, because at this point, I guessed exactly what Hilary was talking about. But, spoiler alert, I'm not allowed to tell you yet, but I'll release that section of the interview once that episode has aired. So, uh, something to look forward to, a tiny little mini episode. Just want to say a huge thank you, Hilary, for coming on and sharing like all these amazing kind of stories and like the programme with us, because I think it is a really important programme that is aired and, and has been done and I know you know Neil and I are both super happy that one has actually finally been done about the British Isles and it's coming out we can't wait to watch it so just a huge thank you so much for coming on and chatting to us about it sharing with us some of your stories it's a pleasure thank you I hope you enjoy them and then inspired to uh, to save our wild isles so Hilary where and when can people see the wild isles you can see it on BBC one on Sunday nights at 7 p.m and you can get it on the iPlayer as well. Brilliant. Oh, fantastic. And thank you so much again, Hilary, for coming on. We really appreciate it. But I think that's it from us, everybody. So we'll see you in the next episode. Bye. 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 Bye.
Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UK Wildlife Pod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Neil Phillips and music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.